there's a book called The 100th. It's by astrophysicist Michael Hart. who asks this question, who are the 100 most influential people in history? Now, of all the human beings who have ever lived, who has the deepest impact on our lives today? That's the question that he's posing. And who, who is on this list of historical game changers? For example, Hart includes Sigmund Freud on his list. Freud is considered the father of psychoanalysis. He's popularized an entirely new field of human study called psychology, which has kind of taken over the, it's the secular priesthood in a sense in today's world. We now use many of the words that he coined, phrases like eco and the Oedipus complex or death wish. They all come from him. But he also includes men like Louis Pasteur. Pasteur ushered us in the realm of modern medicine. He proved to us that these unseen things called germs cause diseases. He also figured out how to inoculate human beings so we don't get some of these terrible diseases. But what really made the book interesting is that Hart had the chutzpah to rank the top 100 world changers. I wouldn't even venture to try because I would have no clue who they might really be. But what did he do with Jesus Christ? How does he fit in the picture? He did make it onto Hart's list. He recognized that Jesus was the originator of the world's most influential religion in history. And he wrote this. He said, Jesus had an extraordinary, impressive personality. Now, that's a nice compliment. It seems understated if one really knows who Jesus is. Hart ranked Jesus as the third most influential person in history, right behind Isaac Newton, who, ironically, was a devout follower of Christ. Now, in one sense, Hart is attempting to answer a question that every single person has to answer. What do you make of Jesus? And your answer says a lot about how you will live your life and reality. We could ask, how would you rank Jesus? Is he the top 100 of your list? Is he in the top 10? Is he number one on your list? Or does Jesus belong on your list at all? Depending on how you answer will change the way you spend your money and how you spend your time. It's going to shape the way you talk and who you hang out with. It's going to influence how you cope with pain and suffering it's a critical question every single person must answer though some might choose to ignore it the bible teaches that jesus claims to be more than just an influential man to be placed on a list of influential people he claims to be god and that brings up this morning's question why did jesus claim to be god did he lie that was what the card said and asked. And the obvious implication, if he's not God, he's either a liar or he's self-deluded and trying to delude others as well. So we're going to see that Jesus did not lie and that he and his disciples clearly claimed that Jesus was God and that he supports his claim through evidence. If true, it should influence not only how we view Jesus, but how we should live our lives and what we do with them. So let's pose the question again and look at three responses to the question, why should you believe that Jesus Christ is God? And the first thing we'll notice this, Jesus clearly claimed to be God and his disciples supported it. There's no argument from scripture that Jesus made that claim. He claimed to be the God of the Old Testament. He just, did, just, he just didn't claim to be God of any God. He claimed to specifically to be God, the God of the Old Testament. There's no question that Jesus claimed to be God, but what this God was like is the big question. In fact, that's the central theme of the book of John. 
For example, John 8, 53 to 59 tells us that after Jesus had claimed to be the father of Abraham, the Pharisees responded. Let's look at the dialogue that happens between the two of them, starting at verse 52. The Pharisees ask, are you greater than your father Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, if I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father whom you claim as your God is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. And if I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and obey his word. Your, your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are yet 50 years old, they said to him. And you have seen Abraham? Very truly, I tell you, Jesus answered. Before Abraham was born, I am. <laughs> Weird grammar. We'll look at it in a moment, but it says... They understood what he was saying because it says at this they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Bad grammar. Before Abraham was, I am. Well, so what upset the Pharisees? They didn't like his grammar? No. There's a deeper reason that. The Pharisees clearly understood what Jesus was referring to when he claimed to be I am. That was the Old Testament name for God. The name Yahweh, Jehovah, as we often hear it, was given to Moses as the name that God was to be addressed as. We're told in Exodus 3, 1 and following, where Moses encounters a burning bush that did not burn up. And so curiously, he went over to the bush, and God began to speak to him. And of that, the God of Israel began to speak to Moses. And he said this, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. And this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. And Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of the fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're saying to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. When Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am, every Jew present knew exactly what he was claiming. I am the God, Jehovah, of the Old Testament, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, it wasn't just Jesus who made the claim. His disciples claimed he was God. In fact, John opens his gospel with the clear intent of demonstrating that Jesus is God. This is to be the theme of his book. And he tells us, beginning at 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. And Jesus will later be identified as the Word. In verse 14. But we also need to note this, that Jesus was crucified because of that claim he was crucified for blasphemy the fact that jesus claimed to be god is the reason he was killed 
The Jewish leaders saw his claims as blasphemous. Matthew says this, but Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do you need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He's worthy of death, they answered. There is no question Jesus claimed to be God. And it makes a difference in terms of how we view him in comparison to anyone else in the world. In fact, John Jeremiah Sullivan, who's an award-winning writer, who's been compared to the famous contemporary writers Tom Wolfe and David Foster Wallace. If you know anything about literature, they're fairly well known. He talks about having what he calls an adolescent bout with evangelicalism. And Sullivan had walked away from the church and had a biblical faith, but he can't fully reject the person of Jesus Christ. Even though he abandoned all the infrastructure of Christianity, Christ was his issue. He says this, At least once a year, since college, I'll be getting to know someone. It comes out that we have in common a high school Jesus phase. That always gives an excellent laugh, except the phase is supposed to end, or at least give way to some other phases, not simply expand into a live-long preoccupation. My problem isn't that I dream I'm in hell. It isn't that I feel psychologically harmed. It isn't that I feel a sucker for having bought it all in. It's that I love Jesus Christ. Why should he vex me? Why is his ghost not friendlier? Why can't I just be a good, enlightened child and see in his life a sustaining example of what we can be as a species. Sullivan claims that once you know Jesus as God, it's hard to find comfort in Jesus as just another man. And even after years of unbelief, Sullivan admits, one has doubts about one's doubts. He's right. Once you know Jesus as God, it's hard to find comfort in Jesus as just another man. In fact, most of us would find no comfort in just another man. So it shapes how we view him and what he says. He is set apart from any other man, any other source of truth, any other way to God, and any other way to live. Jesus is distinct because of his claim and because of who he is. Now there's a second response to a question, why should you believe that Jesus Christ is God? And it's this, Jesus supported his claims through prophecy, miracles, and resurrection. We're, we're told that Jesus fulfilled up to 300 Messianic prophecies. We'll look at one in just a moment. But if you go to Josh McDowell's book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, you will find an exhaustive list of, of Messianic prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. Now, many of the Gospels refer to these prophecies to demonstrate that Jesus is the Christ. In fact, one whole chapter in Isaiah is devoted to a very descriptive and detailed prophecy of the coming Messiah and the suffering he would endure. Isaiah was written about 600 years before the time of Jesus, and yet the details of the suffering Christ or the Messiah would, could easily have been written after the events occurred, and yet we know they were written before through the presence of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And Isaiah 53 says this, referring to this coming Messiah, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
He was oppressed and afflicted, and yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before shearers is silent, he did not open his mouth. And by oppression and judgment, he was taken away. Yet who of this generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgressions of my people, he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. And yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord made his life an offering for sin, he will see, will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hands. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servants will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Remember, this was written 600 years or more before Christ ever came into the picture. And yet you read it and you're seeing, wow, this is descriptive of the gospel. The death, the burial, and even the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, it's a prophecy, one of many, that support the claim that Jesus had. But Jesus also appealed to his miracles for support of his claim. Toward the end of his life, John the Baptist was arrested for calling King Herod to task for his sin. And as a result, John was in prison and his life threatened. And he rightly asked the question, John the Baptist rightly asked the question, is Jesus the one I'm called to prepare us for? But notice what Jesus says. Matthew 11. When John was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who has come, or should we expect someone else? And Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you see and hear. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. He is saying, John, look at what I have done. The miracles that I have done, it affirms that I am the Messiah that you prepared for. But then, Jesus, on numerous occasions, will also refer to his resurrection for support for his claim. Matthew 12 and Matthew 26 are just two examples. On numerous occasions, when Jesus was challenged to give proof of his claims, he appeals to the upcoming resurrection that they had yet to see. For instance, Matthew 12, 38 to 40 says this, Then some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign, but none will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights into the heart of earth. Later in Matthew, it says this, The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death, but they did not find any. And though many false witnesses came forward, finally two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. You recall where John talks about Jesus saying, I will destroy this temple and build it up. In light of this reality, Tim Keller tells us this, we should be more sympathetic to our skeptical friends. The resurrection makes Christianity the most irritating religion on the face of the earth, and the reason is because how do people decide what they believe? They decide what they believe by reading it and saying, I like it, or I don't like it. Over the years, I've had so many people say, well, I could never be a Christian. I say, why? Well, there are parts of the Bible I find offensive. 
I remember years ago, it had to do with money. In my little church in Virginia, people were often offended by what the Bible said about money. And today in New York, they're much more offended by what the Bible says about sex. It goes on. I usually say, let me ask you a question. Are you saying because there are parts of the Bible that you don't like that Jesus Christ couldn't have been raised from the dead? And they say, well, no, I guess that's not what I'm saying. I said, well, every part of the Bible is important, but would you please put the ethical teaching aside for a minute? And here's the point. If Jesus was raised from the dead, you're going to have to deal with everything in the Bible. If Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, I don't know why you're vexing yourself over that. What's it matter? But the fact of the matter is, Paul was more offended by Christianity than you. He was killing Christians, and we don't advise that. But when we realized that Jesus had been raised, it didn't matter what offended him anymore. It didn't matter because it was true. And we have to keep that in mind. The resurrection is a paradigm-shattering historical event. It confirms that Jesus truly was God. Because only God has the power over life and death itself. Now there's a third response to our question, why should you believe that Jesus Christ is God? And it's this, the deity of Jesus is fundamental to our faith and to our salvation. First of all, we know, we know this, that only God can achieve his standard of holiness. It's a high standard that only he can reach because he is God, he is holy. For instance, Isaiah 6, 1-6 shows the contrast of us before God where Isaiah says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted seated on a throne and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And at the sound of their voices and doorposts and thresholds shook and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined for I am man of unclean lips and I live among a people unclean lips and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Here he is in the presence of the Holy God and he sees his self in comparison. And he goes, woe to me. Romans affirms that same thing where he says, starting at verse 10, As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have sinned. All have turned away. They all together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood and ruin and misery mark their ways and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth shall be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight. By the works of the law, rather through the law, we become conscious of our sin. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. The righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ. To all who believe, there's no difference between Jew and Gentile for all sin and fall short of the glory of God. There's only one person in history that has achieved the standard of God's glory, and that's Jesus Christ, because he is God. But there's another thing to note, and that only God can forgive sin. 
The following count shows why this is important. We see in Matthew chapter 9 and following, one and following. So he said, some men brought him a paralyzed man lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. At this time, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming. And knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain certain evil thoughts in your heart? Which is easier to say? Now, ponder the question that Jesus was asking here. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk. And he goes on, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up and take your mat and go home. And then the man got up and walked home. And when the crowd saw that they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to the man. If you ask the question, what's this easier to say? I forgive sin or get up and walk? It's easier to say, I forgive sin. Any of us could say that. I can go around saying, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Only God forgives sin, but I can make the claim. So what was impressive about this thing is that Jesus takes the more difficult thing of saying to a paralyzed man, one who had been paralyzed for life, get up and walk, and in his getting up and walk, it affirms his claim of being able to forgive sins, something only God can do. But there's a final point to be noted. Our eternal destiny is dependent on the deity of Jesus. Jesus is speaking. He says, look, this is Revelation 21. Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things have passed away. He who was seated on the throne, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done for I am the Alpha and the Omega. Alpha and Omega, the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost for the spring of life. There are those who, victorious, who will inherit all this and I will be their God and they will be my children. Our eternal destiny rests on the fact that Jesus is our God. Now imagine for a moment a basketball game. It's almost the end of overtime. It's time for you to to take one last shot. Who do you want to have the ball? You want the calmest and the best player out there. Or imagine the security of a nation is threatened. Threat levels have gone through the roof and an attack is imminent. Who do you want to have the nuclear codes? Who do you want to make the final call on what to do or not to do? You want someone who's calm under pressure. Or here's one more example. Imagine you need a crucial surgery to save your life or the life of a loved one. Who do you want want behind the scalpel? Who do you want to perform the surgery? Of course, you want the best doctor available. And that's how the Gospels present Jesus as he faces the cross. He's under extreme pressure, pressure that you could never fathom. He's actually sweating drops of blood. And and yet at every stage, Jesus is calm. He's in control of himself. But Jesus also leaves every sports star, every politician, and every surgeon far behind. It's not that Jesus is in control of himself. Jesus is in control of the very events themselves. 
It's not that he's just able to handle his own adrenaline. He can dictate the result. It's not that he's just able to act wisely under pressure. He's able to determine the outcome. Jesus just isn't able to respond skillfully to what he finds. He already knows what he will find. And has already mapped out the solution to the deepest human problem of all. Jesus stands out in this because he's in control of the entire sweep of human history even as he goes through death. Why? Because he's God and as God he is in control. And that says to us no matter what you face, no matter what you encounter, no matter what you have to endure, we have a God who's come to become a man in the form of Jesus who's in charge. He's in control. This morning we consider the question, why should you believe that Jesus Christ is of God? And we saw that Jesus and his disciples clearly claimed that Jesus was God, and he supports those claims. And if it's true, it should influence not only how we view Jesus, but how we live our lives with purpose and meaning. You see, Jesus is not just another person on the top 100 most influential people in history. He's God. It's not a lie. It's real. And because it's real, it should shape how you live your lives. It should shape what you believe and what you do because it matters. So what does it mean that Jesus is God? First of all, we are created to give our lives to him. That's our purpose, to glorify God, to give our lives, to serve him. Jesus said to them in one of his passages, Jesus said to them all, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny himself and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to live their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Another thing it implies or it says of us, when we believe in Jesus Christ, we become a citizen with God's people. Ephesians 2, 19 and following says this, Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple to the Lord. Here's the final application. Because Jesus is God, we do not need to fear death. Let me give one example. Philippians 2, 20 says this. I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. Tim Keller tells the following story. I've heard people say I'm checking out Christianity, but I also understand Christians can't do this, and the Bible says you're supposed to do that. You're supposed to love the poor. You're supposed to give up sex outside of marriage. I can't accept that. So people want to come to Christ with a list of conditions. But the real question is this. Is there a God who is the source of all beauty and glory and life, and if knowing Christ will fill your life with his goodness and power and joy so that you would live with him in an endless age with his life increasing in you every day, if that's true, you wouldn't say things like, you mean I have to give up sex or something like that. Let's say you have a friend who's dying of some terrible disease, so you take him to the doctor, and the doctor says, I've got a remedy for you. 
if you just follow my advice you will be healed and you will you will live a long and fruitful life but there's only one problem while you're taking my remedy you can't eat chocolate wow that's a hard one tough now what if your friend turned to you and said forget it no chocolate what's the use of living i i can identify with that one i follow the doctor's remedy but i will also keep eating chocolate if christ is really god then all the conditions that we impose are gone to know jesus christ is say lord anywhere your will touches my life anywhere your word speaks i will say lord i will obey there are no conditions anymore if he's really god he just can't be a supplement we have to come to him and say lord i'm willing to let you start a complete reordering of my life see jesus claimed to be god jesus is god and it means eternity for us.